Hello and welcome back to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. Modern dating can be so challenging. I mean, never mind the whole pandemic that's going on right now, which of course creates its own challenges, but simply finding good people, meeting them, and moving forward in the kind of relationship that you're looking for, that's also a challenge. Knowing how to take a relationship to the next level, knowing when to get out of a relationship so that you can perhaps find something better, all of that is challenging. Today, we're going to focus on all the ways that you can get out of your own way and use the power of behavioral science to make better choices and better matches as you navigate the world of modern love. Now, before I introduce today's guest, I just want to remind you that Relationship Alive is an offering to you so that you can have the best possible experiences with the relationships in your life. If you're finding the show to be helpful, please consider a donation to ensure that we can continue. Every little bit helps, and you can choose whatever feels right to you. Just visit neilsatin.com support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And this week, I would like to thank Kirti, Jules, Dion, Cynthia, Claudia, Julie, Maribeth, Laura, Sarah, Dave, Michael, and Ruthanna. Thank you all so much for your generous support and, in many cases, ongoing support of Relationship Alive and our mission. Now, as you'll hear us chat about in today's episode, and honestly, in almost every episode, it is so important for you to be able to communicate effectively in your relationships. So, here are a couple things you can do to learn how to communicate about anything and have the best chance at staying connected while you do it. First, I have a free guide that I put together, which contains my top three relationship communication secrets. If you haven't downloaded this free guide yet, I got to ask, what are you waiting for? It's free, it's simple, it's actionable, and all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Or I've put together a full Secrets of Relationship Communication course. In this course, there are over three hours of material but it's broken up into bite-sized chunks that will help you improve all the aspects of communication that are under your control. And you'll learn exactly what aspects you can't control. And you'll learn what to do when things get out of control. So just visit neilsatin.com slash course, C-O-U-R-S-E, to join. Lastly, if you're looking for a place to get support in your relationship with people who listen to the show, and are putting these principles into practice, come join the Relationship Alive community on Facebook. If you're not on Facebook anymore, I don't blame you, but if you are there, come join our community. Okay, it's time to get on with the show and introduce today's guest. We are fortunate to be having a return visit from my friend and colleague, Logan Yuri. Harvard-trained behavioral scientist turned dating coach, whose new book, how to Not Die Alone, The Surprising Science That Will Help You Find Love is finally available. Yes, go order it now. Or, well, listen to what she has to say. Then go order the book. 
Logan is also the director of relationship science for the dating app Hinge. And as you'll hear today, she knows her shit. See, we're making choices all the time, and those choices impact the kinds of relationships we do or don't have. Logan's work does such a good job of pointing out the ways that our decision-making can actually get in the way of having a fulfilling love life. You may recall that she was here back in episode 231, and if you want to listen to that episode, you can visit neilsatin.com slash Logan. And for today's episode, if you want to download a transcript or get links back to Logan's website, she has a great quiz that you can take where you can find out your primary dating tendency, uh, just visit neilsatin.com slash Logan2. That's Logan, L-O-G-A-N, and the number two. Or as always, you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions, uh, which will lead you to all of our episodes and show guides. So uh, let's dive in. Logan, Yuri, so glad to have you back here with us on Relationship Alive. Thank you, Neil. It's always fun to talk to you, whether it's for the podcast or just through our friendship. And I'm so grateful that you invited me back on the show. Well, I did make a promise when we last spoke that when your book was finally going to be out and available, that it have you back. And I'm, I'm actually really excited that we're here basically on the eve of your book being available. So, um, so for all of you who are listening the first time around and who are thinking, um, I can't wait to get that book. Now you can. So, um, Make sure you check it out. That's a big time for you because you've had this book in the in the cooker for quite some time. So um, it's exciting to to finally be at this moment, and we'll get to see the impact that your book makes on the world, which I'm sure will be huge. Yeah, exactly. I think when you and I recorded the last one back in May of 2020, it was the first time I had done any sort of interview about the book. So it was like I had just given birth to all of these ideas, and it's this 300 page book about finding and keeping love and then to actually be asked questions about it was a pretty new experience. And now, let's say more than half a year later, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how to present the book, you know, whether it's for Instagram content or a newsletter, just really thinking through like, what are the best ideas? What are the top takeaways? What are the things that seem to resonate with people who have read it? So I'm actually in a pretty different place with the material in the book than I was before. And it'll be interesting to see in this conversation what sort of emerges from the different place that I'm at in terms of the book content. I agree. I agree. That will be interesting. And um, I'm remembering that, that you were like, yeah, this is this is like my first interview about this stuff ever since, you know, since putting it all together. So that will be different. And also what's kind of unique for me is that I've been on a bit of a break for the past two months. So um, so in a way, I'm coming uh, to everything sort of fresh and with a with a renewed perspective. So let's let's start with this question of how you get prepared to go out into the dating world, because as I was mentioning in the intro, so much of what we do and the choices that we make are just sort of like based on what the world throws our way in terms of who we meet or who we swipe right on and who swipes right back. And I'm curious to know if you have like a basic idea of how we can prepare ourselves without like getting caught in um, be trying to be over prepared like uh one of we talked about the three tendencies in our last conversation and you talked about 
hesitators and their tendency might be to be overprepared. So what kind of preparation is actually necessary for being successful in modern dating? Yeah, I'm glad that we're starting the conversation here because this is where I would start the conversation with the new dating coaching client. So if you think about the kind of person that approaches me and wants to spend money on dating, it's not like they've never tried dating before. It's usually that they have experienced a series of frustrations and they're saying, you know, I like my job, I like myself, but this one piece of my life, it just really isn't working and and what is holding me back? And so when I meet with a client, I think a lot about what are the patterns of behaviors, what are the things that they're doing or the attitudes that they have that are holding them back from finding love. And we did talk about this in our first interview, but I think it's worth bringing up because it does appear to be one of the things from the book that really resonates with people. And so I have this framework called the three dating tendencies. And the idea here is that after seeing many clients, I realized that many people have the same dating blind spots, the same patterns of behaviors or attitudes that are holding them back. And that it's really important to identify what these are because that's the first step in overcoming them. And so the key insight here, the three dating tendencies is unrealistic expectations. And so the first type is the romanticizer and they have unrealistic expectations of relationships. They think relationships are all about that initial excitement. They think that you don't have to put effort in, your Prince Charming or your Princess Ariel will find you. The second type is the maximizer. They have unrealistic expectations of their partner. They think, oh, I could be with somebody perfect. If only I do a little bit more research, then I can find the perfect person. And they ask themselves things like, could I be 5% happier with somebody else? And the third type, which you mentioned, is the hesitator. And they have unrealistic expectations of themselves. They think, I'll be ready to date when I lose 10 pounds. I'll be ready to date when I get a more impressive job. And so they're always waiting to feel 100% ready. And that's not really reality. Nobody's ever 100% ready. You just have to start. And that's how you get better at dating. And that's how you figure out what kind of person you want to be with. And so really the first question as you're either getting back out there or you have a renewed sense of looking for someone is, what are the bad habits and behavior that are holding me back? And it might be something that you can identify on your own. Maybe something like, I'm too picky. I'm not picky enough. I don't put effort in. It might be something that you can see, or it might be a blind spot. And I really encourage your listeners to actually ask a friend, say, hey, dating is something that I want to focus on this year, and I want to get real with myself. What do you think are the bad habits holding me back? And actually giving that friend that room to be honest with you about the patterns that they've seen, that can actually be a really helpful and major change that helps people overcome these bad habits. And so, yeah, that's really the first step is saying, what are the patterns that I want to break? Why do I keep winding up in bad relationships or no relationships? And then, of course, as I explained in the book, information on its own is not enough. So there's some interesting research in the field of behavioral science that says, if you put calorie counts on a board at Dunkin' Donuts, it doesn't really change whether or not people order donuts. Because by the time you're walking in there, you know you're getting a donut. It doesn't matter if the donut is 300 calories or 400 calories. You've already made the decision to get a donut. And so what we say here is that um, information does not necessarily lead to action. So the first step is that information, what's holding you back. But the second step, perhaps the most critical step is, okay, so what are you gonna do about it? And that's where you have to make a plan, you have to have accountability, you have to create incentives. You actually have to take the time to shift away from those bad habits. And it's not easy, but that's where the growth comes from. It comes from saying, I don't like the path that I'm on. 
If I don't make changes, I'll keep being on that path. And I actually want to make a specific, thoughtful change to go on a different path. So that all sounds awesome. And especially the idea of making a plan and and creating some ways to hold yourself accountable to a different approach to dating than perhaps you've done before. What I'm wondering is how much does do you think it matters that being intentional like that could mess with people hunting for that that spark or that chemistry that they they just feel or they just know it when they feel it? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked me about that. That's one of my favorite chapters in the book. And it's really something that I feel like has taken off with people. And uh, Neil, am I allowed to curse on your podcast? Curse away. Okay, so probably my favorite chapter title is called Fuck the Spark. And what I say in this chapter is that the concept of the spark has become my nemesis. And we all know what the spark is, but I'll just spell it out. The spark is that instant pang, that that instant excitement and chemistry. It's your heart beating. It's butterflies fluttering. And it's not that the spark is always a problem. But so many times when I set people up on dates or when I'm debriefing with a coaching client, they describe a really good match for them. And then they say, I won't be seeing that person again. I didn't feel the spark. And the reason why I feel so strongly about fuck the spark is that there's a number of myths around the spark, and I'd love to take some time to debunk them. So the first, yeah. So the first one is that if you don't feel the spark, then the relationship is doomed. And that's absolutely not true. So there's some really interesting research out of Israel that shows that only 11% of people feel love at first sight. So lots of people, that feeling of intimacy, connection, attraction grows over time. And there's a concept called the mere exposure effect. And what this tells us is that the more times that we see someone or something, the more we like it. It's why a song can sometimes grow on you if you've heard it a few times. It's why people end up marrying somebody from work or marrying somebody who lives in their dorm or the hall of their apartment building. The more you see someone, the more you like it. And so that's the first myth. You think, if I didn't feel it when I met the person, it'll never grow. And that's not true. That feeling of connection can definitely grow over time. The second myth is that if you have the spark, it must be a great connection. And this one's really interesting because sometimes there are just people who I think of as sparky. And these are people who are often very attractive very charismatic, and unfortunately, narcissistic. And they often give people this feeling of the spark. But it's less about what's going on between you two and more that this person is able to give you that feeling. Mm. And so sometimes you see people who chase that feeling of the spark. And this is often, I'm sure you've talked about this on the show, that anxious avoidant loop when anxiously attached people are chasing after that avoidant attached person and they're getting confused. They think that the chase is what love is. And they think that the fact that they don't know if that person will call them back when they said they would, they confuse that feeling of anxiety for chemistry. And finally, the last myth around the spark is that if you have a spark, it must be a great relationship and that your how we met story really matters. And I found a lot of couples who are divorced or separated or married but unhappily, who really did have an amazing How We Met story. But just because you had this romantic beginning, that doesn't really have any bearing on the rest of your relationship. And people who are in a relationship that isn't serving them, but they're staying because of their romantic How We Met, I would really encourage those people to rethink it. And so instead of optimizing for this spark, this feeling of instant chemistry, my suggestion is to go after the slow burn. 
And that's the person who gets better over time. You know what? They might not be initially sparky. It might take them some time to open up, but those are often the best partners. Those are the people where the more time you spend with them, the more you like them. And these are the diamonds in the rough. And these people often make the best long-term partners. And if you can train yourself to not worry as much about the spark and understand it can grow and instead look for the quality of the person and the side of you they bring out, that's much more likely to help you overcome some of these bad habits and find yourself in a great relationship. Mm, I love that. And I, when you were talking about the diamond in the rough, I, I felt like, oh, that really applies maybe more to the the level of connection that you experience with that person in terms of your relationship, that really what's going on is bringing your curiosity to your interactions with this new person to, to find the diamond that that person actually is um, in that moment. Because, and the reason that felt important to me as a distinction is that I think a lot of people actually choose kind of fixer-upper projects, which is a little different than what you're talking about, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. You know, I haven't done that much research into the fixer upper thing, but my hypothesis on that is that some people really like to play the role of the mentor. And this is a dynamic I've seen play out in a lot of relationships where the person feels like, well, my partner isn't really on my level, but I can help them get there. And they really enjoy kind of solving someone's problems or, you know, making them better. And while that's in some ways, a noble attempt. I often feel like the visual for me of those people is one person kind of dragging the other person along with them. And mm. what I think would be much more fulfilling for many of those people is if they had someone who was really on their level and who they were running quickly together. It wasn't one person dragging the other along. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but I do do this thing called breakup consulting, where I help people decide, do I want to end it or mend it? And part of that is people who sort of do get in these relationships where they feel like they've outgrown the other person, but they don't know what to do about it. And so, you know, instead of thinking of someone as a fixer upper, I would think, what side of me does this person bring out? Mm. And then I would focus on, is this the person that I want to be most of the time? And so, yes, maybe you actually do like playing that mentor role. And, and I have seen that dynamic. But instead, if you think about growth and making hard decisions together and someone who you're going to respect and admire long term, I think that would help people take themselves a bit more seriously and really find someone who's a true partner as opposed to a true project. I like that. Yeah. And the problem with the projects, I think, is that it sets up a dynamic that can actually feel really secure at first because those roles are really well defined on some level. And, you know, the person who's offering the help feels a certain measure of control. The person who is getting the help feels a certain measure of being cared for. And yet it's not really a sustainable pattern when in the end, I think what people do want is what you're talking about, that more like we're actually both people who are on the same level and, and able to really thrive together and contribute together to this. Like we can each take the reins at any given moment if required. Yeah, Neil, I love that point. And it reminds me of something one of my friends said a couple years ago where she was like, I feel like I'm the adult bird and I keep dating women who are the baby bird. And she was like, you know, I'm always the one who cooks. And even if she cooks, then I end up cleaning up the whole kitchen. And they just had all of these patterns of always being the caretaker and the other person, it really emphasized their ability to always be taken care of and not take responsibility. And for her, the work was actually getting out of that relationship, finding a different woman who 
could sometimes be the baby bird and sometimes be the adult bird. And just understanding that, yes, she was drawn to these women who were more needy and needed her protection, but that what actually felt good to her and what was going to be a healthy, sustainable relationship for her long term was a person with whom she didn't play out that dynamic. And so, so much of what my book is about is this idea that we're making these small decisions, but if we keep making the same ones over and over, we'll wind up in the same place. And so that first piece is really doing an audit of what kind of person do I seem to be attracted to? What kind of relationships come out of that? And how can I make a different choice to end up in a different kind of relationship? What do you think is important in terms of making those assessments and then feeling like, wow, I, I really have a lot of work to do on myself in order to make different choices versus just saying, oh, here are the kinds of choices I'm making. It's time to just experiment with some different choices without necessarily having done all that work on yourself. So I think both of those methods are valid. I mean, I really love experimentation. I love thinking about dating as a science. You mentioned at the beginning the Gottman's art and science of love, but it's really true because one good example of why experimentation matters is people often have this idea of the type. They say, I'm 36 years old and I've been dating since I was 18 and I know my type. I know the kind of guy or gal I want to end up with and I just have to find that person. And they think about it much more as just, I've already identified the type of person and I just need to locate them. And what I would encourage people to do is to actually question their idea of the type. Perhaps you've been dating this so-called type for a while and it hasn't worked out. And one thing that I've come upon in my research is the idea that we are often wrong about what will make us happy long-term. And mm. many people are married or in successful relationships with someone who is the opposite or very different from the type that they thought they would wind up with. And that's because of this idea. You think you know what you want, but you might be wrong. And so to be a good dating scientist, to be a good experimenter, I would actually encourage people to question this idea of the type and to say, I am very ambitious and career oriented. I need to be with someone like that. Well, Maybe you actually want to be with someone who's more of a compliment to you, someone who's less career focused, and maybe that's actually going to be the perfect co-parent. Or if you say, I'm really clear on the physical traits I find attractive, and so I set my height filter at over six feet tall. Well, maybe that's not true. And maybe you could actually find an amazing person that's much shorter than that, but who makes you feel sexy and desired and alive. And so part of being open-minded about dating is to say, I might be wrong about what I think I want, and I'm actually going to question those assumptions, and I'm going to go on some dates with people who I wouldn't normally say yes to, and I'm going to see what emerges for myself. So allow yourself to be surprised. I'm thinking about this in terms of where we're, like the, the moment in time that we're talking in right now during, you know, we're here in the middle of a pandemic, and it's really changed the landscape of how people do date each other. Um, and I wonder if in your work at Hinge or in your research, if you've seen that actually what's happening now is being helpful for people trying on new potential partners in ways that maybe they weren't able to before. That's definitely something that I've seen. So we could talk for a long time about dating during the pandemic, and there's a lot of things that make it challenging. Obviously, it's hard to meet people organically. It's hard to go on in-person dates that feel safe. It's harder to be in long-distance relationships where normally you would travel and see each other all the time, and now it's not safe. That being said, there's a lot of nice silver linings to this moment. And one of them is that I do think that people have become more open-minded. They've become more open-minded about the different types of people they could be in. 
But also one of the changes that I've seen people make is that they're actually valuing their connections they make even more. And so one of my close friends, and he would be comfortable with me sharing this, he's the kind of person who, very charming, went on a lot of first dates, really seemed to be good at the beginning parts of a relationship, but it rarely clicked with people. And once the pandemic hit and it became harder to meet people, he met this woman and he just invested in her and in the partnership way more than he would have if it weren't for this moment. Normally, he would have hit a rough patch with her and then moved on and said, oh, I can find someone else better, right? Doing the maximizer thing. And instead, he said, well, it's not that easy to meet people. She's become part of my pod. I'm actually going to see where this goes. And their relationship has just blossomed so beautifully. They recently got a dog together. And it's just been amazing to see what really opened up for him when he was willing to invest in this. And so at Hinge, we've seen that ghosting is down 27%. And for me, that's a sign of both people valuing their connections more and also just approaching dating in a more empathetic way, right? Ghosting is one of the most painful parts of modern dating. And I've been really happy to see that overall dating is up. That means virtual and in-person dates and ghosting is down. And so I have seen people during the pandemic become more serious about looking for a partner and also open-minded, more open-minded about what that partner might be like. Mm, Yeah. And that gets back to what you were saying before about um, taking a little bit more time to actually get to know a person, to not like make a quick judgment based on whether you feel a spark or whether you don't, that the act of getting to know someone over time will uncover things about them that you would never you would never get in a first date anyway. I mean, let's face it, on first dates, people are generally somewhat awkward or anxious or super excited, but whatever it is, there's they're most often a, a distorted version of who they really are until you've taken the time to actually get comfortable with each other. So it makes sense to me that that it would be a little bit different and that it would create more opportunities when people have more time to invest in each other and to invest in the process um, versus just like meeting a person, deciding whether or not they feel the spark and saying next or not. Yeah, absolutely. And Neil, honestly, this thing about the slow burn is so important to me. And I really feel like my husband is a slow burn. We met in college then we became friends, and we know this because we were Facebook friends. We met again about seven years later when we both worked at Google, and then it wasn't until a year after that that we started dating. And truly, I feel like the ability to just be around him, see how he made me laugh, see what our conversations were like. He just, every time I met him, I liked him more and more, and he grew on me. And like, wouldn't you want to be in a partnership where your love for that person grows over time versus your interest in that person declines because the spark is wearing off? And so I really hope that people can shift to this idea of the slow burn. And another part of this, another way that I am hoping that the slow burn can emerge is I have a chapter called Go on the Second Date, Make the Second Date the Default. And the idea is that a lot of times people go on the first date, they say, eh, wasn't good enough, didn't feel the spark, not going to see that person again. And if you actually make a rule for yourself, I am always going to go on the second date. You're much more likely to actually find that slow burn because some people just do take a longer time to open up. And so if you say, my rule is that unless something extraordinarily bad happens, I'm going to go on the second date, you are creating an environment that makes it easier for you to find that slow burn. Yeah, I like that. That's, uh, I think, a, a good rule of thumb uh, with the important qualifier of as long as there's not something obviously 
awry with with the person some obvious warning signs flashing right right from the get-go so i'm thinking about how more and more so we're encouraging people to know themselves better to to know Mm -hmm. their um their foibles as well as the things that have worked well for them and to know more and more what they're what they're looking for in a relationship not for the sake of like disqualifying people because maybe they're less than six feet tall um, but getting really clear on how to know if someone really is good relationship material. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about those kinds of questions and how you how you unearth that for yourself, the things that really are your your deal breakers or your deal makers. And um, and then I have a follow up question to that, but that might be a good place to start. Sure. Yeah. There's a couple directions I can take this. And the first one is that we do have a field called relationship science. This is the study of how love works. And through relationship science, which is academics really studying what matters when two people get together and what makes a relationship successful long term, we can actually figure out what are the qualities that matter more and matter less than people think they do for long term relationship success. And so first, I'd love to talk about the ones that matter less than people think they do. And the first two are looks and money. The reason why looks and money matter less than we think they do is because of something called adaptation. No matter what situation we're in, we actually get used to something. We get used to our environment. And so while you might be with someone who's super attractive, your interest in them does naturally fade over time because so much of attraction is around novelty. And there is a funny quote, you've probably heard this before, that says, show me a hot person and I'll show you a person who's sick of having sex with them. And that's a little (laughs) flippant, but it's true. A lot of sex is about novelty. And with money, it's the same thing. When people think about, oh, it'd be so amazing to become a lottery winner. They think about the process of going from their normal amount of money to getting that large amount of money as a lottery winner. But actually as a lottery winner, people just get used to their surroundings and they actually get peers who have a lot of money too. And suddenly they've adapted to their surroundings and they're no longer on a daily basis focusing on how good it feels to have that amount of money. The next one that people overestimate is having a similar personality. And so I have had several clients who say, I love going out. I'm a party person and I want to find someone who's just like me and somebody who wants to stay out till 3 a.m. instead of somebody who's more of a homebody. And I look at them and I say, no, you are almost too much on your own. Two of you in a relationship would be way too much. And it matters way less to find someone who has the identical personality to you and much more to find someone who has a complementary personality to you. And the last one is people overestimate shared hobbies. It's actually fine to have different hobbies. You don't need to both love camping. You don't need to both love wine. What actually matters way more is do you support my hobby and do I support yours? Or do I get resentful that I don't get all of your time? Now, here's the category of things that matter more than people think. And this is informed by relationship science. And so the first one is loyalty. We really want to be with someone who is going to stick with us through the good and bad. And one little shortcut for finding this is someone who's had friends from different phases of their lives, someone who helps their friends move, someone who actually takes their depressed friend out for dinner, not the person who's a fair weather friend and is only there for you when you're at the top of your game and you are the most fun that you can be. Another one is kindness. And this seems really obvious. Nobody's going out there saying, I want to find someone who's unkind. But actually just being with someone who puts others first, who is empathetic, who cares about, you know, 
the person who can't help them, the people below them? How do they treat the server? Things like that. And the next one is emotional stability. And so a great way to look about the, look into this is how does this person react to stressful situations? Are they very reactive where they're immediately sending out angry text or blowing up? Or do they actually take that moment to respond? And it's, it's that moment of taking a breath and responding the way they want to. That's really a great sign of emotional stability. Other things that matter are things like a growth mindset. Do they look at the world and say, I can grow my skills and get better? Or do they say, I was born with the skills I have and there's no use in trying? Another one is, do you make hard decisions together? I'm not just talking about what food you order in. Really, if you were to have job offers in two different cities, if one of your parents got sick and needed to move in, is this the kind of person that you can make a hard choice with? Do you respect them? Do you respect their decision-making? Do you find them logical? And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about, Neil, about why you don't want to be in the mentor-mentee thing because it's just not sustainable. And finally, the last one and the one that even some new research has come to support even more is the idea that a relationship is what's between the two of you. It's not who you are on paper. It's what side of you that person brings out. And so that's really what matters. And if you go on a date with someone who's great on paper but makes you feel small, get rid of them. That's not the person you want to be with. You want to be with the person who really brings out the side of you that you want to be because that's who you're going to be around them. Well, we are going to have to talk a little bit later about when you're in relationship with someone and how those kinds of things as they evolve over time might contribute to your wanting to work on something or leave. But before we go down that path, I'm curious as like I could imagine sitting here and listening to you and being like, in fact, I was listening to you and, and being like, yeah, those all sound like great qualities or important things that I would be looking for in a relationship. And something that I hear a lot from clients is this um, dilemma that they go through where they're out in the dating world and they're like crystal clear on what they're looking for and what's important to them. And what they're not crystal clear on is how to how to do the ascertaining about whether or not this other person is really on the same page as them. And and some people make the mistake of like, yeah, we were on our first date and uh, they asked me what I was looking for in a relationship. And so I told them the, the list of 10 important things that I'm looking for in a relationship. And I never heard from them again after that. And so there's this balance between knowing what you're looking for with such like certainty and and being willing to to hold out for that and uh, instead of settling for something less. But on the flip side, it's like, well, how do you, how do you recommend bringing that into a conversation that where it becomes part of the connection that you're building as opposed to something that might scare another person off, even if they were on the same page? Yeah, Neil, that's a really interesting question. And I would really love to hear your opinion on this. It's something that I get asked in a slightly different way, but a related idea which mm-hmm. is how do I tell people what I want without coming on too strong? And I mm. think that that question is actually founded, I think it makes sense, right? I've had men who tell me, I went on a date with this woman and I felt like she was interviewing me for the role of husband and she had a rubric <laughs> and thought, um, am I actually, you know, she's basically interviewing me for that role and do I fit the rubric or not? Do I satisfy the job description. And so, yes, you don't want to come across that way, but at the same time, you also do want to be clear about who you are and what you want. And so 
the advice that I feel has worked the best for my clients is helping people understand you can be really clear about who you are and what you're looking for and how you got there. And then you can actually just get curious and invite the other person to share where they are. So what that might sound like is something like, you know, I've been dating casually for a few years. I've gotten into some relationships. I feel like I'm really ready to find someone and I'm ready to be in a serious relationship. For me, that might mean getting married. It might mean not getting married. It probably means having kids in a few years. I'd love to hear kind of what your dating journey has been like and where you are with that. And the the nuance to what I said is that it's self-awareness without neediness. So it's really inviting the other person to tell you where they are and hopefully And this isn't always a guarantee, but hopefully the other person feels like you've created a safe space for them to maybe say something like, you know what? I still think I'm in that casual dating period that you talked about. And sure, if I met someone great, that might change. But for now, I'm actually just looking for casual connections. And even though that might not be what you're looking to hear, it's so much better to understand where the other person is and what their intentions are. And that's really going to save you a lot of time. And so I think if you create a situation where the person has to feel like they, or sorry, where the person feels like they have to tell you, oh yeah, I'm also looking for something serious or else you'll be mad at them. Really the trick is to be self-aware and to create space for them to tell you where they are. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit in our last conversation, um, in, in terms of the, the what's up with us conversation, Uh like the, where are we at thing? And um, and I think that it's just true as a general rule. If you're looking for a dynamic that you want to foster uh, in a potential partnership or in a relationship that you're already in, it's that one of, hey, I welcome, I want to know you. I want to know your truth. I welcome it, like whatever it is. And, and then maybe along with that, can I share with you mine? Would you be willing to hear my truth in a, in a similar fashion? That that actually opens up way more possibility than, than yeah, feeling like, well, here's where I'm at. Like, are you there or not? Because if you're not, then like, I'm out of here, um, which obviously is going to be a bit more confrontational. And, and uh, I'm not sure who would want to sign up for that, aside from someone who like really wants to please you. And then you get into, uh, the again, those kind of healthy, unsustainable dynamics where, they might tell you everything you want to hear because they know it's that's the only way to move forward. Uh, but in the end, you find out that it really wasn't true for them. And I've actually yeah. been there in relationships where I've been on both sides, um, but I've certainly been there where it, I could sense like, oh, if I'm if I'm actually in my truth in this moment, then this is going to go no further. So um, at the time, like I would make a much different choice now, but at the time I've, I would make the choice to, to say what I thought the other person wanted to hear. Um, and I've, I've lived to regret those, those, uh, those moments, even though it felt like the right thing at the time. Yeah. I think that that's great self-awareness. And I, I love hearing that, that you've had that experience, but you've also been able to work, move past it. Logan, we just need to take a quick moment to hear about this week's sponsor. And I don't know about you, but when the cold weather keeps us inside or when I don't really feel like going out for whatever reason and I just need a break from all the research and reading that I do for Relationship Alive, one of my favorite ways to decompress is to curl up under a blanket with my doggo or a special someone or both and get lost in a fun show. 
And one way that I like to change things up a bit from your typical fare is to watch brilliant TV from across the pond. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the different sensibilities and ways of telling stories that they have in other countries, or the kick-ass soundtracks with familiar or intriguing new music. I don't know. But it's different and entertaining, and it's one reason that I really enjoy Acorn TV. Acorn TV is a streaming service that's rooted in British television. It has a rich catalog of exclusive, award-winning series across genres, mysteries, dramas, comedies, and more. Not sure what floats your boat, but if you're a fan of quirky British comedy, like I am, then the other one is definitely a must-watch. It's full of hilarious, brutally honest moments that come up in life and relationships. And on top of that, if you're a Downton Abbey fan, the other one features a masterfully funny performance from Siobhan Finneran, who played the crafty maid Sarah O'Brien on Downton. Plus, you get access to all of this new, different content for a fraction of the cost compared to most streaming services at just $5.99 a month. And as, as a Relationship Alive listener, they have a special offer for you. You can escape to Britain and beyond without leaving your home and try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and using my promo code ALIVE. That's A-C-O-R-N dot T-V, code ALIVE, to get your first 30 days for free. And thank you so much, Acorn TV, for your support of Relationship Alive and our mission. Okay, Logan, let's get back to our conversation. In terms of what I offer um, people, I think it's very similar that you want to learn how to bring yourself to the conversation in ways that that don't make it about about the other person, where you're really just being clear that this is about me and my journey and what I'm looking for, and I'm curious to know where you're at. Um, and in fact, you might even say, like, just so you know, like you don't have to be in the same place. Like, I really do want to know where you're coming from. Um, and we may find our way to a, a point where we where we intersect and where we're in total alignment. And it may be interesting to find out where we're not, um, which would help kind of keep the the conversation open along those lines. Yeah, Neil, I feel like that really is a critical part of this, is that people are so afraid of getting bad news that sometimes they don't even invite the honest conversation. And so- Last time we talked about the woo-woo, the what's up with us, which is a, another term for the DTR, the define the relationship conversation. This, uh, this relationship milestone does seem to lend itself to some funny acronyms. And the point of this is that sometimes you're at the beginning of a relationship and you want to understand if the other person is on the same page, but you're afraid that if you bring it up, you could lose them or you could find out something that you don't want to hear. But the advice that I would give is that you're so much better off having the data, even if it's not exactly what you wanted to hear, than to just go along and say, I'll hope for the best. And so in general, when you reach one of these milestones where you say, I could either ask for clarification and potentially get bad news, or I could just um, assume that we're on the same page or not bringing it up, I would really encourage people to do the bold, courageous thing, which is to have that tough conversation. Because even if you hear something that you wish you hadn't heard, at least you now have the information you need to move forward. And that really saves people time and it helps them get into those relationships they wanna be in, as opposed to wasting months or even years with someone who's not on the same page. 
yeah, let's hang out here for a second because, uh, you know, I've witnessed people basically in both places, like either the person who's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not totally ready to commit, but I'm really loving this exploration and, and I feel optimistic about it, but I'm just not ready to say like, yeah, this is it. And then there are the people who are like, well, I'm pretty sure this is it. And I'm nervous to ask the other person if they're ready to commit because I'm afraid they'll say no. And then, and then what, you know, then I've, I've turned it into this big drama. So I'm wondering just for you, you know, with your clients or personally, what's your, what's your approach to each of those people meeting that moment in a way that allows them to have the risky conversation, the bold conversation, whether it's like, just so you know, I am still dating other people, or just so you know, I've deleted the apps without it becoming necessarily a make or break moment for their relationship. So this is my advice to the person about why they should bring it up or what they should do based on how someone responds. Yeah, how that how to handle the response. So for instance, like let's say I'm the person who's decided I'm committed. And right. and the idea of the other person like still out there dating other people or like for some reason they haven't decided that I'm the one for them. Like that really makes me uncomfortable. What would be the next step in that conversation? If they did take the courageous step, they brought it up and the other person said, you're awesome and I'm not quite ready to not be dating other people. What would you offer a person who's, who's, who's kind of in this place where it's like, well, I do want to continue, but mm -hmm. man, this sucks. Like knowing that you're totally. not committing to me. So the first thing I would say to that person, I'm just imagining that a client comes to me and says, Logan, I did the courageous thing. I brought it up and this is what the person said. First thing I would do is just congratulate them and say, you know, at least you know, and now we can work with that. And now you have a decision to make. And the decision that you have to make is, are you willing to wait for this person? Is what they're offering you something that you're willing to put up with? Or do you actually want to be with a different type of person? And this is advice I received a long time ago that I felt helpful, was I found helpful, which was don't make somebody a priority when they're only making you an option. And so maybe the person says to you, I'm really interested in you, but I just got out of a long-term relationship. I can't see myself committing or becoming exclusive right away, but I'd love to see where this goes. In that case, the person's giving you their context. They're saying, I don't want to rush from one relationship to the next. I don't want to Tarzan between two partnerships, but I want to see where this goes. And if you feel a connection with that person, absolutely, you can wait. Absolutely, you can see what develops, but it's now your choice. The other thing I would say is that you should absolutely thank that person for their honesty. And Neil, this is something that you and I talked about while I was writing the book, is that if somebody tells you their truth and you respond in an upset way because you're disappointed, you are teaching them that you are not mature enough to handle what's going on for them. And so really the number one thing to do in that moment is to say, thank you for telling me where you are. I really appreciate it. I'm going to spend some more time thinking about if that's something that fits with my life and my goals right now. And so if you are to respond in an angry way or sort of shame them, then they have no reason to be truthful with you in the future. And so you need to respond with maturity, with compassion, with empathy, because you really are working towards the goal of a long-term relationship, or you might be. And part of that is giving someone the space to tell you news that's important, but not necessarily what you wanted to hear. Mm. Yeah, and something I think that's important to add, and by the way, I, I, I love that. I think that that's really good, good advice for that person, is that 
I don't think it's important for them to be emotionless, you know, like, like part of taking that information and take really taking it in and creating that space isn't that you have to pretend that it's okay with you if it isn't okay with you. It's more like, how do you handle that lack of okayness about it? Um, you know, there's the, there's the response that, that shames the other person or that, that gets angry or, you know, that, that's going to create a context that, you know, eliminates future truth telling most likely. But on the other hand, you, I think you are invited to say like, wow, that's just so you know, that's really like, thank you for telling me. And that is hard to hear, or that's, um, I'm feeling really sad or disappointed and, and, and knowing that, um, you know, I think you're, you can offer something of your truth in that moment, which can actually be really connecting um, in a way that, that doesn't shut the conversation down and that doesn't, you know, it might still, like if that other person has a sensitivity to not wanting to upset anyone, then it could still sort of shut them down. Um, but if you're offering it in the spirit of like, no, I'm just, I'm just letting you know where I am and I want to keep this conversation going, um, then I think it, it creates a, a bridge for both of you sharing your, your truths in that moment and hopefully actually feeling even closer after that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that what we're talking about today is really some of these core lessons, things like when you are in a relationship, choose clarity over fear, choose courage <laughs> over avoidance. And you're just so much better off having that conversation with people and really strengthening that muscle of, do we know how to have a, a, a challenging conversation when we're not on the same page? And going back to pandemic dating, this is one of the kind of interesting silver linings is that when people are meeting up IRL right now, they have to talk about things like, will you be wearing a mask? What have your quarantine procedures been? How big is your pod? Are we going to socially distance when we meet up? You know, at some point they might talk about, can I kiss you? What would that mean? And so people who previously would have only talked about very superficial things in the beginning or maybe just logistics, they actually are being forced to have these hard conversations earlier. And what that might mean is that some people actually end up canceling a date because the person's not wearing a mask or not going to socially distance. But that's actually really interesting that people are having challenging, heartfelt, honest conversations earlier because that's such an important part of a successful relationship. And so what that means is that the pandemic has forced people to actually practice that skill with each other earlier. Is that something that you've seen? Totally, totally. It's like you... You have to have the the edgy, you know, most people, if they hopefully have the STD conversation with their with their partner, that's not something you would typically have until a little ways in, usually. But now it's like that is almost a precursor to any further conversation with that person, at least if you're planning to meet in person. And probably even prior to that, because the choices that someone is making around things like that might impact your desire to even have a second virtual date with that person, for instance. Um, so yeah, I, I've, I'm finding that to be true as well. And I think it's a huge gift to, uh, it will be interesting to see the relationships that were born during this time, if in fact they did take a certain measure of, um, of intentionality that sets them up to be more successful in some way. Um, I'll be curious to see how that how that unfolds for sure. 
Yeah, that's really what we're seeing with the Hinge data. I mean, I talk to the press all the time about what have we seen with dating during 2020 and then what are our predictions for 2021? And so much of it is about the intentionality of people. People who just weren't prioritizing relationships said, hey, I don't like quarantining by myself. I feel really isolated and lonely. I'm going to actually put more effort into finding someone. And other people actually did that self-audit that we talked about. They were more introspective about who am I? What am I looking for? What are my bad habits? And a majority of Hinge users told us that they've spent part of the pandemic breaking bad habits, things like chasing after an ex, and actually developing new ones like not ghosting. And so it's been really interesting to see what does the intentionality of all that self-reflection plus the motivation of finding somebody to be with during the pandemic, what will that look like? And what I am excited about seeing is a bunch of new relationships that form from people who are really prioritizing this this side of their life. Mm, yeah. I'm curious to know if you have any pointers for people who are trying out virtual dates. Um, this is so, I did talk about digital intimacy on the show. I can't even remember what episode it was, but it was probably like around the beginning of the of the pandemic. But I'm curious to know what you've seen in the maybe in the data around what kinds of virtual dates, like what are things that make for a successful virtual date and what things don't seem to matter or are definitely the wrong thing, the wrong way to approach it? The first thing I would say is that if you're waiting to try a virtual date, just do it. It's something that tons of people are trying for the first time and are finding a lot of success with. And so if you are fearful that it's going to be awkward, we found in our Hinge research that 81% of people who had tried a virtual date said it was not at all awkward. So that's really my first piece of advice is if you're waiting to do it, just do it. The second thing is actually focusing on your mindset. Mindset is such an important part of a successful date. I like to say, whether you think the date will go well or you think the date will go poorly, you're right. And so really focus on what happens before the date. That's when your mindset is really solidified. So maybe that means listening to your favorite podcast. Maybe it means listening to some pump-up songs, calling a friend, exercising. You really want to be in the right state of mind before you go into that date because the energy you're bringing in has a huge impact on how you feel about yourself, how you show up, and how the other person responds to you. My next piece of advice is a little bit more practical. Just think about how you're going to show up physically. Get ready in the same way that you would get ready for a real date. Think about the light. So many times, and this is for another project I work on, so many times I see people on a first date, they have this light behind them that basically makes it impossible to see their face. Just just do a, do a dry run with a friend. Make sure, you know, is the lighting flattering? Are you holding the phone under your chin so you look like you have, you know, six chins or, or you actually look like, is, is it actually a flattering setup? So actually just do a dry run to make sure it's easy to see you easy to hear you and that you look good. And then the next thing, and this would be my advice for all first dates, is skip the small talk. Who cares if somebody went to college or what they studied? Who cares how many siblings somebody has? That actually just doesn't help you get to know them better. What really matters is things like, what are they thinking about right now? What's keeping them up at night? What's a passion project that they've developed during the pandemic? Even silly things like what is a habit that they developed that they want to keep going? What is a purchase that they've made during the pandemic that they regret or they're really proud of? Skip that small talk. You can come back to it later. You can ask them what part of the city they live in eventually, but actually just really getting to know people. And maybe I'll end on that note that that's one of the final 
great silver linings of the pandemic is that you don't have the distractions of being in a loud, crowded bar. You can actually have these beautiful, long, meandering conversations and truly get to know someone. And so your relationship is created on a foundation of mutual understanding, mutual respect, really deep conversation, as opposed to maybe that physical intimacy, which is really fun. But once those hormones come out and that oxytocin is there, it can be hard to really evaluate the person. And so actually just using virtual dates as a chance to go deep with someone, that would really be my recommendation. Mm, yeah. Yeah. A question that a friend of mine offered the other day that I really, I was like, oh yeah, that's a really good one is something like, um, what's something about your life that you would want me to know right now? Um, which is a lot different than like, How's how's the how's it going for you in the pandemic, right? Which is you know, you, any number of of miserable ways you could answer that, or there could be great ways to answer it. But something like, what's important to you right now? And I I want to know like what's important in your life, or what are you passionate about right now, despite everything in the world, or inspired by everything in the world. Um, I think those kinds of questions also lead to to those that deeper sense of connection that you're talking about, Logan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have a couple more questions I can add to that category. So one of them is, what's something that you normally don't share on a first date? Share it. And I like that question because it's a shortcut towards the person being more vulnerable than they would nor than they normally would be. It also helps you stand out because you're basically saying, this isn't a normal first date. This is a special kind of first date. And it really helps the person think in a different way. One mistake that I see people make on first dates is something that my friend, the behavioral scientist, Kristen Berman, calls press play mode. And this is a mode where you basically are used to repeating the same stories over and over. So Neil, if you were on a first date, you might say, I run this podcast, it's called Relationships Alive. Every week I interview this type of person, right? You're just repeating this thing that you've said a million times. Versus if somebody were to say to you, tell me something that you don't normally say on a first date, it actually forces your brain to go, what am I hiding about myself, what's really going on for me that I wouldn't share, and now I'm gonna share that. And getting you out of press play mode into a moment where you're actually present and experiencing the conversation, that really helps get the date off on the right foot. Mm, I love that. And while you were mentioning that, I also, I had this, you were talking before about the mindset that you bring to the virtual date or really to any date. And mm -hmm. I, I'm feeling inspired to mention that I think it's also helpful to to really hold not only your curiosity, but the sense of like, this other person is special in some way. And it may not be that they're special, like they're going to be your next partner, but there's something about this person that is amazing or beautiful or interesting or intriguing. and in truth, there are probably, there's probably more than one thing, but there's at least something. And so I'm entering this, this experience to try and figure out what that is. Um, and not only just figuring out what it is, but also assuming that it's true, um, which I think is a better frame for entering a date rather than where I think a lot of people go, which is how, how quickly can I disqualify this person um, for, for, partnership with me. 
Yeah, that's something that I talk about in the book, this idea of the negativity bias. And there's some interesting research from the biological anthropologist, Helen Fisher, where she talks about the fact that it's easy for us to see what's wrong with the person. It's easy for us to nitpick and see what would make them a bad partner. And what's actually more interesting is to see what's right with the person. And so that would be my advice to people is whether you are swiping on an app or you are on a first date, really use your imagination to see what is attractive about this person. Maybe it's the way that they talk about their sister and they're just clearly so family oriented. Maybe it's the way that they smile and laugh when you tell a joke. Maybe it's the way that they make you feel when you talk about your career and they ask really great questions. And if you can actually shift your framework from what are reasons to disqualify this person to what are reasons to say yes, you will not only have so much more fun on the date, but you will also be better at finding those slow burns that we talked about. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Logan, you have so much to offer and I'm going, I want to make sure that we do cover the question, which is kind of the opposite of what we were just talking about, which is once you're done appreciating all the great things, this question about knowing when it's time to, to cut bait, when it's time to leave a relationship that isn't working. Um, but before we do, I just want to remind you that Logan's new book, How to Not Die Alone, is available at a bookseller near you or online. And uh, I'll also have links to Logan's website, which is loganyuri.com um, on the show notes page, which you can get if you go to neilsatin.com slash Logan2. Um, and on Logan's site, you can take a quiz to figure out which of the three dating tendencies that she mentioned earlier are is your prominent tendency. And, uh, and she's also offering some cool bonuses if you, um, if you do get her book now. So you can go to her site to find out what the, what the bonuses are. Um, so Logan, can we, can we dive in the different direction, which is like, let's say you're trying to decide like, okay, this person, like here are these things that are great about them. And maybe one of those things is even, I love this person. And yet... There's this thing and this other thing, and this thing is maybe actually a deal breaker that, um, you know, they're, I know I want to have kids and they're not sure they want to have kids. How, how does someone wade through that moment in a way that allows them to make a choice they can feel confident about, even if it involves, let's say, walking away from someone that they do love and care about? Yeah. So the first thing that we can talk about is the idea of a deal breaker versus what I call a PPP, a permissible pet peeve. The uh -huh. idea for this came from a few years ago when a woman walked up to me at a happy hour and she was like, you know, I'm really open-minded about the kind of guy that I might end up with as long as he's not a mouth breather. And I looked to see if she was joking and she wasn't. And she really felt like mouth breathing was this super serious offense, and there's just no world in which she could be with somebody who breathes out of their mouth. And at the time, I'd never thought about mouth breathing. And sure, may maybe it's an annoying trait. Maybe it's something that could get on your nerves, but it's so clearly not a deal breaker. It's so clearly something that does not get in the way of a long-term, healthy, successful relationship. And so what this woman was guilty of was she was confusing deal breakers, true things that would prevent you from being in relationship with permissible pet peeves, something that's annoying, but that you could overcome. And so for people, and especially older people who are more set in their ways, the first thing I would recommend is that they actually do that audit, but to their quote unquote deal breakers. And they think to themselves, is this a deal breaker or is this a permissible pet peeve? 
Is this something that I need or is this a nice to have? And actually, if you can just get a little bit more flexible about what matters versus what doesn't, you're going to wind up in relationships that are focused on the right thing versus saying no to a lot of people who could be great partners. You use the example of having kids, and that's absolutely something that is a deal breaker for some people. If you know that you want to have kids and somebody else knows that they absolutely don't, then by all means, that's a deal breaker. And that's fine. You can have that on your list. I'm not saying you shouldn't have deal breakers, but the important thing to know is which category is it in and don't say no to great suitors because you're confusing a deal breaker for a permissible pet peeve. The next direction that I want to take this answer in is a framework I have in the book called Hitchers versus Ditchers. And so one of the most surprising parts of my work in the dating and relationship space is what I call breakup consulting. And this is something that I really never thought that I would get into. I've never heard of other people doing it, but it just sort of crossed my path. And it's been one of the most meaningful parts of my work. And so what it is, is that people who are in a relationship and don't know whether they should end it or mend it, they come to me and they talk it out and we treat it like an important decision where we weigh the pros and cons and we help them really get at their underlying values and help them understand how to make a better choice. And so hitchers are people who tend to stay in relationships for too long. One of the reasons for that is a cognitive bias, a cloud in our judgment called the sunk cost fallacy. And this is the idea that if you've already invested time and effort into something, you should see it through. It's why sometimes companies have departments that are losing money and really not doing well, but they just keep investing more and more money to try to make them worth work instead of calling it. Uh, some people like to use the expression throwing good money after bad. Mm -hmm. And so hitchers stay in relationships for too long. Ditchers are the opposite. Ditchers don't give relationships a long enough chance. Ditchers enter relationships. They expect uh, being in love to be like falling in love. And after, you know, they hit that inevitable rough patch, they just give it up. And ditchers tend to go from three to six month relationship to three to six month relationship. And so part of my work is helping ditchers and hitchers understand their own kind of tendency in breakups. And then to ask themselves questions like, have I brought myself to the relationship? Are there more things that I could try to make this work? Um, are there external circumstances that are making it hard for my partner to show up the way they should? And should I give them another chance? And so if you understand your historical tendency of staying in relationships too long or too short, and then you understand what you're bringing to the relationship and what external factors might be affecting it right now, you can actually make a much more informed choice about whether this is a relationship you should invest in or whether you'd be better off leaving and starting over with someone else. Mm. Yeah, that's great advice. And and recognizing that when you go, like the choice to go is going to have some pain involved. Like it may have some relief involved as well if you're in a particularly painful situation. Uh, and at the same time, if you if you love and care about someone and you're making this important decision based on, say, a deal breaker, then um, you should expect that it will be challenging and it will challenge you emotionally, most likely in some way. And that's okay. Like it's actually uh, a gift for you to go through that experience and to allow yourself to honor yourself, to honor your heart that, that you did invest. Even if you're, if you're done throwing the good money after bad, you did invest all that money, that time, that energy, that love and care. And um, you know, that's something to, to create some grieving space around that's okay. You'll you'll get through that for sure. Um, you've been doing breakup consulting. I've found 
uh, recently, and it could just be because this has been, you know, the the way that we can sometimes draw people um, who are going through similar experiences. But I've actually been doing a lot of post breakup uh, support work lately, and uh, and it's been such a gift to support people through that time. Um, and so I'm just bringing it up now because when you make a challenging choice like that, it's just kind of part. It's it comes with the territory. Um, but there's light at the end of that tunnel and hopefully a, a better relationship too. Yeah. Neil, it's nice to hear that you're doing such meaningful work. And I feel like this breakup consulting stuff that has landed on my doorstep has been some of the most meaningful work I've done because it's so hard to leave a relationship. It's so hard to imagine what else is out there. And it really is such a painful journey. And it's such a gift to be able to see people go from this state of, I'm not sure, but I have a feeling that this is wrong and that it's been wrong for a while until actually getting the courage to decide to end it, then having that breakup conversation, then going through the pain, the physical and emotional pain of a breakup, and then finally coming out of it on the other side and saying, I found someone new or I'm alone and I'm so much happier. And it's really such an honor for me to be able to see what's ahead of them and to kind of guide them there when they're really just in the chaos of leaving a, a not great relationship. And so for people who are listening, who are wondering, should I stay or should I go? One question that I've come up with that people seem to find helpful is what I call the wardrobe test question. And so this is, I say to you, think about your partner. What is one piece of clothing in your closet? So a piece of clothing that you own that your partner represents. If your partner were one piece of clothing in your closet, what would it be? And say the first thing that comes to mind. And so sometimes I say this to people and they say things like, my partner is that little black dress that makes me feel sexy and amazing. Or my answer is, my partner is my favorite pair of onesie pajamas that makes me feel safe and like I'm wearing a hug. Other people, <laughs> I say this and their first response is, my partner is a scrubby old sweatshirt that I would wear to the gym, but I hope nobody sees me in. Or my partner is a wool jacket that keeps me warm, but then I have to take it off because it itches me. And because this question is sort of random and abstract, it also just helps people get a little closer to their true feelings. And so if you're listening and you're in that situation, ask yourself the wardrobe test and see what your answer means to you. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting question. I I think my hesitation around that would be something around like when people are in a challenging space. I mean, maybe they would. They'd just kind of go with the first answer and they'd realize like, oh, that's it's the little black dress or it's the the tuxedo or whatever. Um, but what's challenging is that people are can be in that really negative place, like where the um the PPP that you mentioned before does feel like a deal breaker because they're just so sensitized to how negative they feel about that person. So that makes me feel cautious about the question, but at the same time. I could see it also being helpful for people being honest with themselves about where they're at. Like if you were, if you gave the scrubby sweatshirt answer, maybe you'd be like, wow, like, I guess I really am like fed up with this situation or I really am kind of pissed off at that person or they really do make me feel horrible and I don't want to be around them, at least not right now. Um, so it, it could be like a good window into the current feeling state, which might shift a little bit if they're doing that deeper the deeper assessment of the relationship. Um, but it sure se seems like an intriguing way to to tap into your honesty in that moment, for sure. 
Yeah, Neil. And of course, we're talking about something really serious. We're talking about taking a relationship that you're in, that you're invested in, that somebody else is a part of. You're you're also holding that other person's feelings and time in your hands. And so I would not recommend anyone just answer that question and then flippantly make a decision. But I think that <laughs> one of the themes of today's conversation is, you know, is love rational? Can you apply decision-making theory to it? I know there are probably people out there who are listening saying, what is she talking about? You know, love is this organic chemical reaction and she's trying to apply rational thinking to it. And no, it's a mixture of both. It's saying relationships come from a series of decisions. You make great decisions and you wind up in a great relationship or you make bad decisions and you keep repeating your patterns and end up in a bad relationship. And so for something as important as whether or not you should break up, you really want to get at it from a number of angles. And that's why you should ask yourself a series of questions like the wardrobe test, but also things like, what else could I be doing? Have I shown up as my best self? Um, what is my historical tendency as a hitcher or a ditcher? And what are the external factors that are leading my partner to not be them be their best selves right now? And is that something that might change in the future? And so I should ride this out. Mm, yeah. And in, and in the end, if you can't make a choice, then if you chose something like dirty old sock, then then you should just let it go. Yeah. And I think, you know, you shouldn't make the decision based on one thing, but I do think that if your gut reaction was, you know, my partner is this pair of pants that used to fit, but I've outgrown, you know, I think that tells you something. Definitely. For sure. Well, Logan, you true to, true to form in what you said at the beginning, you clearly have spent a lot of time chewing on this material that you put together for your book. And um, there've just been so many uh, little gems of wisdom today. So it's been such an honor to have you back um, in celebration of the release of your book, How to Not Die Alone. And uh, and I think this the the larger conversation around how we do relationships and the the experiment of relationship and and you know implied in what you're offering your clients around deciding whether or not to break up is is this notion that it's actually okay. It's okay to end a relationship and to look for something new or better. And what's important is, is how, you, how you meet that moment. There's, there's something there that I think it'll be fun to have you back to talk about at some point. Um, but in the meantime, I'm just so excited for you with your book coming out and so grateful for your spending the time here with me and with us today on Relationship Alive to, to offer your stuff. Thank you, Neil. And first, I should say thank you for your friendship. Thanks for all the work that you put out into the world. Thanks for helping people become more intentional about dating and about making their relationships last. And it was an honor to come on the show and share this. And if people want to keep up the conversation, I would encourage them to buy the book, How to Not Die Alone, and also to engage with me, whether that's through my newsletter, the quiz on my website, or through Instagram at Logan Yuri. And I hope that this is the beginning of an ongoing conversation between me and you, me and your listeners, and really me and anyone else who's out there who really wants to engage in a more thoughtful way about love, dating, and relationships. So thanks for all that you do. You are welcome. And definitely take Logan up on that offer. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. 
And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.